Pray with me if you would. Father, thank you for this morning that we were able to think about, sing about the fact that you indeed did come here. You came here in the person of Jesus, and we're grateful for this. We're grateful for this time of year as we have opportunity to think about the incarnation, and we have opportunity to think about how you did indeed come, and you came to be our Savior so that we would have hope. We're grateful for this, and now as we turn to your word, have some time of study together, may it be a time where our eyes are opened, as the psalmist said, so that we would see wonderful things from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. One of my favorite extra-biblical non-Christian quotations is one I've mentioned many times before, and I'll mention it again. It's by Mark Twain, who said, The trouble with the Bible is not the bits I don't understand, but the bits I do understand. And Mark Twain had a lot of trouble with the Bible. So in the spirit of Mark Twain, so to speak, this morning we're going to be talking about the trouble with the Bible. So that'll be the sermon title this morning, The Trouble with the Bible. Obviously, I'm saying it tongue-in-cheek. Intentional irony is going on. I actually don't have any trouble with the Bible other than the trouble I have understanding sometimes because of my small brain. But we are going to look at this, hopefully in a more of a provocative way. We're going to be talking about the truthfulness and the power of the Bible, but we're putting it in those terms, hopefully for the sake of being provocative and thought engaging. The trouble with the Bible, we're going to look at eight troubling statements about the trouble with the Bible, and Lord willing, next week we'll be back in Romans 13, but this morning I specifically want to talk about this. It's been on my mind for some time, maybe because I can't get that Twain quote out of my head, but thought this would be a good morning to do that. The trouble with the Bible, number one, is that it's always right. (laughs) Trouble with the Bible is it's always right. By nature of divine origin, meaning if the Bible comes from God, which the Bible says it does, then it's always right. That's the trouble with the Bible, Mark Twain would want us to think. 2 Timothy 3.16 is an important passage to Christians. We know the passage well because it says that all Scripture, all of these writings we have in our Bible, it's a very broad and inclusive statement, all Scripture is inspired by God, or literally it is God-breathed. If you want to be technical, it's from one Greek word, theos, God, and pneuma, breathe, God-breathed. It's one word. It comes from the mouth of God, divine origin. Well, that would make it right. And the trouble with the Bible is it's always right. (laughs) And if I don't like what the Bible says, that's troubling to me. I'm not a fan if I don't like what the Bible has to say about this because it always ends up being right. And I want to be right apart from God's grace and I want to be king apart from God's grace. I do love to say to people, by the way, when they say, well, I don't believe the Bible's true because it has so many errors. It has so many inconsistencies. They're saying the Bible isn't true. And I love to say, would encourage you to say, well, which error do you have in mind? Which inconsistency are you thinking of? Now, granted, there are some pretty smart unbelievers who make it their mission in life to try to attack the Bible. I'm not thinking of those particular kinds of people that might cause you to do a little extra work. But typically, you're going to have a response of, um, uh, translation, duh. Okay? So just respond with an appropriate response. Well, which one did you have in mind? At the end of the day, it's not going to end up holding water. If it really comes from the mouth of God, it's going to be able to defend itself. 
and there are no inconsistencies or contradictions. Obviously, we pay attention to things like context and so forth. Well, let's, let's hear from Jesus on this. If you turn with me to Matthew chapter 4, Jesus is a great one to turn to for obvious reasons. Um, but Jesus also affirms the truthfulness of Scripture. This isn't just um, some uh, later sort of doctrine that someone came up with because they really wanted to, to prove themselves to be right. Uh, the Apostle Paul learned what he knew and taught in 2 Timothy 3 from Jesus himself. Jesus believed in the veracity or the truthfulness of all Scripture. And Matthew chapter 4 is a great text where he's interacting with Satan, being tempted, and we see that he affirms that the Bible comes from none other than God. He believes in inspiration. In Matthew 4, 1, we read, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry, and the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written. He's quoting Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. He's quoting the Old Testament. And he says, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, here's what you need to see, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. He's quoting Scripture, and he's referring to Scripture as that which is God-breathed. How do we get our sustenance? What do we live by? It's not by bread alone. It's by, by the very Word of God. And he's referring to the scriptures as the word of God. And so we're in good company when we say we believe the Bible is God's word and therefore it's right. Jesus was so passionate about this, this matter of the Bible being important and significant in God's word that in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 and 18, where he's talking about coming to fulfill the law on our behalf, he talks about not even one little tiny mark of one little letter will pass away. Okay, so he is committed to the details, not just the spirit of truth and the spirit of the Bible. He's even talking about the details. So the problem with the Bible is, it's always right because it comes from God, which shouldn't be a problem to us at all. It shouldn't be the, a trouble to us at all. Here, here's what should happen for us if we're Christians. We should be rejoicing here we live in the, in the midst of un, instability and our health is not stable and our relationships aren't stable and our world isn't stable and politics aren't stable and government isn't stable and all of this stuff going on around us. It's great if we can be like the psalmist in Psalm 19 where he says in verse 7, the testimony of the Lord is sure. Some place you can turn, some place you can turn and you can find something that is stable. It's not changing. It's not changing at all. It would be helpful for us as Christians sometimes as we deal with, with oh, here's this theory that's against the Bible and here's this theory that's against the Bible. Well, maybe we should work hard and study our Bibles better and maybe we should study other disciplines better also. But one thing we can also do, history would tell us, having done the hard work, we can also sleep well at night and be patient. Because theories come and theories go. And over and over again, the Bible wins. All kinds of, all kinds of theories that have been held in the past and now they're not in vogue anymore. And oh... <laughs> There's actually some archaeological support for X, Y, or Z that happened in the Bible. Usually that's not on the headlines. Usually that's somewhere else. 
But in the end, theories come and theories go. Feelings come and feelings go. But in the end, the testimony of the Lord is sure. It's the final arbiter. Number two, another trouble statement. The trouble with the Bible is it's always relevant. The trouble with the Bible is it's always relevant. Psalm 119 verse 89 is the text I have in mind. Psalm 119, 89. If you're new to the Bible, you might just want to chill out. Um, we're not here to try to stump you with a Bible drill. We're going to be all over the place. Next week, we'll just be in Romans 13. I'll do my best, not even to cross-reference. Uh, <laughs> but today, we're just kind of looking at the big picture of different things. The trouble with the Bible is it's always relevant. You know, when, when I don't like what the Bible says, I would like to just have it not be relevant. Maybe that's just a first century thing. Maybe that was just B.C. by a couple thousand years or something. But at the end of the day, the Bible ends up being relevant, again, because it's God's Word. I love Psalm 119, verse 89. Psalm 119 is all about Scripture. And it says in verse 89, Forever, O Lord, your Word is firmly fixed in the heavens. It's a great picture. The Bible's bolted to the floor. <laughs> okay? It is fixed and it isn't going anywhere. No matter what the waves might look like, it is fixed. And it is fixed forever. It uses that word for eternity. And God's word is going to end up standing. The, st the stable, forever, unchanging, therefore always relevant revelation from God. And as believers, we cling to that reality and we say we are thankful that it's not just a trend because trends come and go. Books come and go. Isn't it good that we have something we can turn to that is, go back, going back to Psalm 19, something sure that is stable. It's going to be relevant. Now, just as a footnote, this doesn't mean all the Bible is equally relevant for all times in this sense. There are many things in the Bible that are there. For example, for Jesus to fulfill, as in the law. So, not everything is equally binding on us. It's all relevant to show us something. But when you go, for example, to the Levitical food laws in Leviticus 11, that say, my paraphrase of King James English, thou shalt not eat shrimp cocktail. Okay? Thou shalt have a kosher kitchen. Um, no shrimp. My wife thinks that's her life verse. Uh, <laughs> so, you know what? That's, that's not relevant in this sense. Christ came to fulfill the law. Every jot and tittle, every detail of the law, He fulfilled. And so we have Acts chapter 10, where Peter, who is holier than thou, says, my, ki my kitchen's kosher, no shrimp cocktail for me. And Jesus says, eat, pal. <laughs> Lest you maybe don't even understand the gospel. Christ fulfilled the law. It's all relevant, in that case, relevant in causing us to look to Jesus who fulfilled every little detail that we wouldn't fulfill. And so we see it's relevant in that sense. And so godly people eat shrimp. No. <laughs> Irrelevant. Let's move on. A third troubling statement. Number three, the trouble with the Bible is that it is no respecter of tradition. The trouble with the Bible is it's no respecter of tradition, or we might say traditionalism. When our preferences become authoritative, 
and other people must do what we think is right, even though there's no biblical foundation for it, it becomes troubling because people get in bondage to our authority. We're playing God. The great news, that's the bad side. The good side is that's where God's word comes out and God's word exposes traditionalism for what it is and it calls people back to embracing what actually is true and it frees them from the bondage that you and I perhaps have been under before when it comes to human preferences and human traditions. We might call it legalism. I know I've been freed from lots of legalism because of Christ, the gospel, and God's word. And I know enough of you well enough to know that you've been freed from a lot of legalism too and a lot of traditionalism. And where did that come from? Well, it came from, yes, the gospel as revealed in God's word. And you don't have to wonder whether or not it's okay to leave the legalism behind. God's word frees you from the legalism. But if I am a legalist, like a religious leader who wants you to follow me because I have a God complex, then I'm going to give you more and more legalism. The trouble with the Bible, therefore, for me, if I'm a legalist and a legalistic teacher is, it's going to free you from the legalism that I'm imposing. A great text is Mark chapter 7, verse 1. If you're still in Matthew 4, you can just turn over to Mark's gospel account. And Jesus had it out for the legalists. And they were the religious leaders, like the ones who would put him to death, the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the right-wingers. They, the, the, they were the theological, social conservatives, but not in a good biblical sense. Their mentality was, well, if a little is good, then a lot is better. And so they started adding their own rules and their own regulations, like sometimes happens. Remember, sometimes a tradition is fine. We all have traditions, right? As many have said before me, the, the, the person who is most enslaved to tradition is the person who says they don't have any, right? We have traditions for sure. I like to call them traditions so that we know what they are. They're not biblical. They're preferences. But sometimes those preferences, because we're trying to apply the Bible, maybe it starts in the right place. And then all of a sudden we make this a policy. We make it a law. We make it a, if you're really godly, you'll do this, Right? And it crashes and burns. And Jesus wants to free you from that by using the Bible, bringing the Bible to bear on legalism. And he wants to free you from that. But if I'm a leader, the trouble with the Bible is it's going to free you. If I'm a a legalistic leader. Look at this engagement here. It's a great narrative in Mark chapter 7, verse 1. There are two major traditionalistic kinds of things he's going to free them from. Now, Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, They saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. So boys and girls, it's okay. You don't have to wash your hands. I'm, I'm kidding, boys and girls. It's a different kind of issue, right? This wasn't just to make sure you get the flu germs off your hands. That's a good idea. He's not talking about hygiene. He's talking about something that the religious leaders had come and they made it all these extra steps if you really want to be, again, godly right? And you really want to live according to a higher standard because we love God, right? That, that's what he was in. And they had to do all these things. And Jesus is going to lock and load on them because those people are in bondage and they're not honoring Christ in that way. So let's keep reading about this Phariseeism. Verse three, for the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands, holding to the tradition of the elders. Verse four, and when they 
And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe. And they're probably going, yeah, that's right, we do. Stick your chest out. We have many traditions. Such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. Again, this is ceremonial. This is not for mere hygiene. Verse 5. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition, right, of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? He's already bringing the Bible to bear, rather interestingly enough. And as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as, this is crucial here, doctrines, that is, official truths coming from God, the commandments of men. Verse 8 is really a punchline. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. Which, as an aside, that's what always happens. Whenever you end up elevating human preference, no matter what, even if you say, well, it's still below the Bible, it never ends up being below the Bible. It ends up being above the Bible. It always works that way. Because the Bible is going to free you as ultimate authority. And instead, this ends up suppressing the Bible. And that's what's going on here. They're not complimenting each other. One is actually contradicting the other. Verse 9 then says, And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. That's what always happens. Verse 10, For Moses said, Ah, Bible is going to free you from traditionalism and legalism. He's going to quote Scripture. Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. We're going to see why he says that in a second, but I just want you to notice for now what Jesus does to free people like you and me from traditionalism and bondage is he quotes the Bible. It's the key. It's, it's, it's crucial to understand that's what frees us from bondage. But you say, verse 11, if a man tells his father and mother whatever you uh, would have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God. It's a technical word that means given to God, right? It's this fancy thing that they would do. Then he explains, Then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. We can stop there for a second. Just quickly, the idea is this Corbin thing. Okay, we're going to live by a higher standard. We're going to be faithful. We're going to do all the extra things. And if you really want to be godly, you're going to live by a higher standard and you're going to do Corbin. You're going to give all your money to the Lord's work. See the number on the bottom of your screen? Call now. <laughs> if you really want to be blessed by God, you're going to give all your money to the ministry. And oh, we start feeling ever so good about our extraordinary things that other people don't do because God never called them to do it. And so Jesus gets the Bible out. You know, family size. <laughs> the basic text that everybody should know, love your mother and your father. And if you give all your money to ministry, which in one sense would be good, but you know what? Nobody said you had to do that. And if you have obligations to your mother and father, you need to meet those obligations. That's explicitly biblical. And he's freeing them to do the right thing and honor Christ. It's awesome the way the Bible does that. Jesus loves these people enough to confront the false teachers and to free them. And how does he do it? He takes them back to the Bible takes them back to scripture 
Then it says in verse 14, and he called the people to him again. He's busy loving these people and said to them, hear me, all of you and understand. This is this is the shepherd's heart of Jesus here. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Now he's going back to that business of how you wash your hands and how you wash your couch and how you do all these other things for God to accept you. And he's saying, you know what? It's so not about that. It's a heart problem. Something on the inside that shows itself in coming out of you. It's not an outside thing going into you. Anyway, all of that to say, again, he's now, he doesn't quote a Bible verse there, but he's, he's teaching biblical theology, we might say. He's teaching a biblical understanding of sin and how it works. This is freeing. The trouble with the Bible is it frees people from legalism, which is not a trouble at all. It's the good side. It's a great, great work of God's grace. It exposes and it frees men and women like you and like me. We won't make this a separate number because we've already called it, but we could also add the trouble with the Bible is it liberates. It liberates. But let's move on to a fourth. The trouble with the Bible is that it distorts our views. The trouble with the Bible is it distorts our views. And if you would turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 4, we'll see how the Bible is really, really effective at distorting our perspectives. Remember, I'm using irony, okay? <laughs> Lest we're confused. <laughs> Maybe as you're turning to 2 Timothy 4, remember we're all theologians. We all believe something about God, even if we're professing atheists and say we don't believe in God, we're saying what we believe about God, that he doesn't exist. Everybody's a theologian, but some are better theologians than others. But we all have a theology, an understanding of God. And it is, apart from God's grace, it's twisted. It's convoluted and it's all messed up. And so what God's word does is it takes it and it straightens it. It moves us from being what Romans 1 says. Um, it moves us from being idolaters with mangled up, twisted views of God. And it takes it, God's word takes it and it straightens it out. So we have a right understanding of God so we actually can truly worship God. And God's word is really effective at straightening us out. Before we actually read the text, I've mentioned this multiple times, and I'll keep mentioning it because it's probably one of my favorite statements um, regarding affirmation. I'm going to be selfish here. One of the most affirming statements ever uh, about ministry that God has given me would be this. When the college student, UCLA student, said in Southern California when we were there doing some pastoral ministry, she said in tears, I come here. I learned the Bible, and it's distorting my view of God. And I'm singing the Hallelujah Chorus, all parts in my heart. <laughs> I was so happy. Now, I tried to be empathetic and nice, and I think I was nice. But inside, I was so utterly happy. Because as she was learning the Bible, it was distorting her view of God. No, actually, her distorted view of God was getting straightened out and it was rocking her world because that's what the Bible does. And then, therefore, translation, what we, she was saying is this is really painful because I'm such an idolater that it hurts to not be one anymore. It's awesome. God's Word does this. Look at 2 Timothy 4, verse 2, where 
It's referring to Timothy as a pastor, but obviously God's word would do this in general also. But he says in verse 2, preach the word. We know he's referring to scripture by word there because of 3.16 and 17. So preach the scripture, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. So popular or not popular, reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. Reprove and rebuke. Those are both negative things. That's, that's the Bible messing with you, right? I'm living a certain way and all of a sudden you're preaching the Bible to me and it, it, and it challenges me and it messes with me. It distorts me. Actually, it straightens me out. Not only that, I'm believing wrong things and, and now I'm learning the Bible and it, it's distorting my theological system, but it's actually not distorting. It's actually straightening it out. God's great gift to us in his word that distorts our views of God. It fixes, actually, our views of God. It's awesome. What a great, great grace from God. If you keep reading, rather interestingly enough, in verse 4, he talks about how people will turn away from, or excuse me, in verse 3 at the very end, he talks about how people will find teachers otherwise uh, to suit their own passions, their own lusts, literally, their own It's the Greek word epithumia, their their strong desires, their own lusts. Since it's a negative context, you translate it negatively like lusts. And will, verse 4, turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. I'm going to ask you to key in on those two words, passions and myths. Naturally, we, we we come into a church service, if you will, into life with two bags, going on a trip. One, lust. Epithumia, passions. The other one, on the other side, myths. Wrong thoughts about who God is. And we love these bags. They, they're, 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 they identify us. This is who we are. We're going to find teachers that will stroke us and tell us more and affirm us more about our myths and our passions. And it's so good that God gives us his word and he says to Timothy the pastor, preach the word reprove, rebuke, which is a way of saying, drop the bags, you know? Get rid of that stuff, it's garbage. And then the positive comes in where he says in that verse, exhort with complete patience and teaching. You know what? Some of us have this death grip on our bags. And God's word being applied patiently with faithfulness, we're trying to help people pry their dead fingers off of the garbage so that they can cling to Christ. I love the text because the text of Scripture helps us to become really undistorted. Undistorted. That's one of the things we do here. It's one of the things we're doing this morning, right? We all have our myths. I think Jesus is one way to heaven. Baggage. Right? I think God is so loving that there's no way hell could last forever. Baggage. I think that you fill in the blank. Baggage. What we want to do is have God's word be brought to bear and free us from the distortions. The trouble with the Bible is it distorts our views. Well, actually, it fixes our views. It's a good gift from God. Let's move on to number five. Number five, the trouble with the Bible is that it is inclusive. The trouble with the Bible is that it's inclusive. Now, usually people say the trouble with the Bible is it's exclusive, but I wanted to turn it around a little bit. 
Because if people think long enough and hard enough about it, the trouble with the Bible is it's inclusive. Now, the volume on the call for inclusivity in our culture is getting louder and louder and louder and louder. Inclusivism, 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 pluralism, pluralism, pluralism. Anti-Christian, anti-Christian, anti-Christian. And you know what I'm going to say today for shock effect? Just embrace that. Some of you know where I'm going, but i got to do it again. I'm going to say, that's right, it's true. There is no more inclusive religion than Christianity. It is so inclusive, it's amazing. Man, when somebody tells me that they, they, they really have a hard time with Christianity because it's not inclusive enough, I'm going to say, what? What Bible have you been reading? It doesn't get any more inclusive than Christianity. I've got a verse. Let me read it to you. Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That couldn't be more inclusive. It includes everybody. Man, Christianity gets a bad rap. <laughs> well, that's not exactly what people are looking for. <laughs> but p- seriously, remember how inclusive it is. It really is inclusive. When the Bible talks about all nations which it does a lot, it doesn't get any more inclusive than all nations. In fact, if you turn to Matthew 28, unless you have it memorized, the Great Commission, Matthew 28, the end of Matthew's Gospel account, verse 18, 19, 20, it is radically inclusive. Let's embrace the inclusivity of Christianity. Now, I know where it ends up. Because of its inclusivity, it is exclusive, and I realize that's what everybody's talking about. But let's say that for another time. Matthew 28 is, is great in this regard. The trouble with the Bible is it's inclusive. And because it's inclusive, it ends up being exclusive. Matthew 28, verse 18, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's means Jesus gets all the authority. That means he doesn't share with anybody else. You see, it is exclusive in that all of it is his, which is inclusive but only of him. Verse 19, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. That's radically inclusive. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. I challenge you to find a more inclusive religion than Christianity. Jesus calls us as his followers to step over every exclusive boundary and to proclaim the gospel to all people. We do this, we even know, thank the Lord that he gave us a preview of what heaven would look like when we learn the book of Revelation that there will be people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. Regardless of language, regardless of where they live, regardless of skin color, it's awesome. It's awesome. Now, granted, this is what makes Christianity exclusive because all authority has been given to Jesus. If the Bible said only go to certain people, people wouldn't have a problem with that per se. We go to everybody because Jesus isn't just for people who live on the North American continent. He's not just for the Jewish people. He's not just for people who live in Europe. Jesus is the Savior of the world, Jew and Gentile. And so we proclaim Christ. 
Isn't it great? It's awesome that we would do this. Make disciples of all nations, all ethnos, all people groups. I love, in that sense, I love uh, pluralism. I love cultural pluralism because everything is so different now, even in Omaha, Nebraska, that in many ways we have all nations coming here. And in that sense, it should make the Great Commission easier (laughs) because we can make disciples of all different kinds of people. And by the way, just for fun, remember, literally, the command isn't go. Literally, the command is make disciples. Literally, it's as you are going. I'll apply that all day long in Omaha, Nebraska, as you are going tomorrow. And as all nations have come to you, (laughs) make disciples. Be inclusive. You heard it here first, folks. Be inclusive. (laughs) Tell them about the great, great Christ. Do remember Acts 4.12 says there's no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. He's the one. Let's move on. Number six, uh, the trouble with the Bible is that it's clear. (laughs) The trouble with the Bible is that it's clear. Well, there are some things that aren't that clear. They're hard to understand. It doesn't mean they're impossible to understand, but that's 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 16. But that seems to be the exception rather than the rule. This is important in light of the trendiness toward, I don't know what word to use other than, obfuscation. There's the word of the day. (laughs) Being unclear. Um, the, The trendiness toward we can't know anything. You know, and it sounds really humble. Well, you tell me that you know, you know, what the Bible means, but you know, I just can't know. That would be arrogant for me to somehow, you know, assume that I can know things. You know, om, (laughs) sounds nice. Please be um, thoughtful, but also be thinking. If God creates the human race, never mind the fact that he reveals himself through his word, this God who created language, If we can't understand him, some God he is, when I say we just can't know, translation, God lacks the ability to make himself clear. That's anything but humble. It's blasphemous. Now, I'm not saying that we can know all things exhaustively. I'm not saying we can know the Bible perfectly. We can't do anything perfectly. I'm not God. But the Bible is clear, and that's the trouble people have with the Bible so many times, like Twain did. Tell me, what, what's clear about this, or, or what's, uh, what's unclear about this? Quoting Jesus, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. Well, unbelieving Greek scholars will tell you what it means. It's pretty clear. You know, there's a reason they crucified Jesus. It wasn't because he was going around saying a bunch of philosophical things no one understood. He was very understandable. And they killed him. Because the problem with the Bible is, whether we're talking about the written word or the living word in this case, it's clear. 
And as Christians, we're thankful that it's clear that we're not living amidst the morass of nothingness and confusion, that we actually have a clear word from God and we say, praise God, we can understand. We can understand these things. That there is only one God who's eternally been God. That we are sinners incapable of saving ourselves. That salvation is in Christ and Christ alone. That Jesus is God and man. That the Bible is God's word. That heaven and hell are real and last forever. That Jesus is coming back. And on and on the list could go. God can communicate. We're glad for this. Number seven. The trouble with the Bible is that it's most concerned with the glory of God. The trouble with the Bible is it's most concerned with the glory of God. Why is that troubling? Because I like the glory of me, right? Naturally, as a result of sin, I, I want it to be all about me. It's about my feelings and my perspective and my understanding and my, 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 my. Read the biblical storyline. God creates and how does he create us? In his image, the arrogance. Not if he's God. Not if he's the creator. He makes us, Genesis 1, in his image. So that we reflect him. That means it glorifies him. It says something great about God when you see someone who makes a beautiful painting and they show they have the ability to create magnificent things. They've been made in the image of God and it should cause you to say, God is amazing. Not only can he create amazing things, he can make people who can imitate him and make create, uh, amazing things. But that's the emphasis of the Bible. From Genesis 1 all the way to the end, God does things to put his own magnificence on display. And I have a real problem with that when my agenda ultimately is putting my own magnificence on display and not giving God any credit. It's a major beef we would have with the Bible. Salvation is a great example of this. If you turn with me to Ephesians 1. Now when we talk about salvation from our sins as Christians, it's personal and it's for us. Please don't discount that. Please don't mishear what I'm saying. We're going to read a passage that is an awesome, encouraging, amazing passage that's about how God rescues us and how I can be forgiven of my sins, how you can be forgiven of your sins, how you can be reconciled to God, you personally. So good. And God does these amazing things for us. But the glory isn't for you. Ultimately, in the end, even in these great passages like the one we're about to read in Ephesians 1, the punchline at the end is, all this is to show how great he is. The trouble with the Bible is God gets the glory, which shouldn't be trouble for you, provided you understand creature or creator-creature relationship. And we understand the gospel. Ephesians 1 verse 13 says, In him... Referring to Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, notice how personal it's, it's you also, when you heard the word of truth, oh yes, I did, this is great, the gospel of your salvation, that's right, it's my salvation, it's good news that I'm not going to pay for my own sins, and believed in him, that's true, I did believe in him, I trusted in Jesus, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. That's right, too. I've got the Holy Spirit who's, who's secured me for eternity. Verse 14, who is the guarantee of our personal, right? 
our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. It just doesn't get more personal. It's about me. It's about me. It's about me. It's about me. And it's about you. And it's about you. And it's about you. And then it says in verse 14 at the end, to the praise of his glory. And as Christians, we say, yeah, we love this great and gracious God. This is part of that big long prayer in Ephesians 1, 3 and following. It's praising God because it's all of him. But from an unbelieving perspective, we've got a real problem with the Bible if we're unbelievers because it gives God all the glory. And we want some of it ourselves. It doesn't work that way. In the end, he gets it. Revelation chapter 5 verse 12 says, They say with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, speaking about Jesus, to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. You want a glimpse of what heaven's going to be like? It's all about Christ, who is the perfect spotless Lamb who was sacrificed to atone for our sins. He gets all the glory. And you're saying, I don't have a problem with that, Pat. That's right. And if you don't, it's because God has worked in your life and you're a Christian. But before, I did have a problem with that. Because I went in on the action. I like a religion that says, God does part, I do part, and in the end, we did it. That's human religion. Every single religion on planet Earth other than biblical Christianity. There there are abhorrent forms of Christianity that are even like that. In the end, it's all of Him. As Martin Luther used to say, we like our own glory story. (laughs) We want it to be about us. It's not. It's about him. The trouble with the Bible is he gets all the credit. God is always busy acting like God or something. (laughs) Well, that's kind of the point. It's kind of the point. And he's gracious and he includes us. This is awesome. But he gets all the credit in the end. And the Bible reminds us of this again and again. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 31. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. By the way, just before we move on to the last one, this is the, the problem If you're having a problem with this, it's okay. We've all had the problem. But it really does separate biblical Christianity from other religions. There's one religion on the planet that I know of. Help me afterward if you know of another one. That says, everyone alive on planet earth is a rebel. Worthy of condemnation, and there's nothing they themselves can do to solve the problem. God is gracious and merciful, loving God, and so He comes here, becomes one of us. His name is Jesus. He obeys perfectly on our behalf because we don't obey perfectly the law of God. He gives Himself over to be crucified and bear the wrath of God that we deserve, and He It's all Him rises again from the dead so that we would have life eternal. I don't know of any other religion like that. And there's no other religion that assaults human pride like that religion does. Supernaturally, God softens hearts, opens eyes, and you say, how could this be so good? That's why the Bible calls it gospel. The word gospel means good news. It is good news that God saves sinners from their sin 
because we could never save ourselves. The trouble with the Bible is <laughs> it gives all the glory to God because God and God alone saves. Let's move on because that's no trouble at all. Finally, by way of conclusion, the trouble with the Bible is it demands a response. It demands a response. The Bible's not like Aesop's fables. It's not somebody's book of virtues. We might like it that way. Oh, I, I came and I listened to Christian philosophy. I feel enlightened. I may choose to implement some of those teachings in my life. This doesn't work that way. The Bible speaks authoritatively about Christ, about God, about you, about me. And then it calls for a response. And it uses words like this. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Acts chapter 16. Which means trust in Him, not in yourself. Trust in Jesus. See, there's an imperative. There's a, there's a call for you to personally respond. Or Acts 17. Moving one chapter over. There's another call. Repent. Turn from your sin. Turn from your idol, idolatry. Because all of us, according to Romans 1, are idol worshipers. Worshiping someone, something other than the one true God. And this is a rub. Because all of us like to entertain ideas if we're educated. But it's not about entertaining ideas. The trouble with the Bible is it calls you to do something. It calls you to action. There's a verdict. Believe in Christ. Repent of sin. Do something. The fence is no place to stay. And I love that. Because the Bible's clear. If you believe in Christ, you will be saved. You'll be forgiven. You'll be declared righteous, justified in the eyes of God. It's awesome. But in my natural pride, I don't want anybody to tell me what to do. God has to be the one to soften your heart. has to be the one to soften my heart to admit guilt, to admit wrongdoing, to admit offense before God, and then to hear God say, believe in my son, and to say, I will. Repent of your sins, I will. That's supernatural. It's totally supernatural. The trouble with the Bible is no trouble at all by the grace of God. Let's stop now. Lord, thank you for time this morning in your word. And now as we have an opportunity to be called to action, to obey you by eating bread and drinking wine, by celebrating communion, Lord, have this be a rich time for us. Thank you that you've been long-suffering and you've been patient with us. Thank you that Jesus came here to do what we could never do ourselves, that he came here to actually earn salvation for us, that he came here to be perfect on, on our behalf, in our place, so that we could know for certain, if we're trusting in him, that you accept us, that you forgive us. Thank you that Jesus came to 
die a sinner's death even though he never sinned. So that our sins could be paid for. Our offenses could be atoned for. And thank you that Jesus is the powerful one who rose again from the dead to never die again. And so that one day, we would never experience death again either. May our hope be in Him and Him alone. And now as we eat and as we drink the way you called us to, paying attention to these symbols of your body and of your blood, may this be a time of worship for us. In Jesus' name, amen.